Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Date, 9th of October 2003, mid-afternoon. Location, Basingstoke Town Centre. Age, 16. A-level English class finished. David walks through his Hampshire hometown, but is stopped. Suddenly, someone grabs my arm. He tells me he's a police officer and flashes his warrant card. Apparently, a young woman has been kidnapped, and I match the description of the suspect. Was this a prank? Or a new, painfully regular surprise? Date, 7th of March 2006. Early hours. During that time, I'm stopped and questioned by the police on three sets. 24th of May, 2013. Date, 17th of June, 2009. Afternoon. Date, 20th of April, November 2006. Late night. My body and bags are searched. The embarrassment is suffocating. In the 20 years since that first stop and search, aged just 16, David Wood, the Times' crime correspondent, has been stopped by police almost 30 times. He's never been arrested and has no criminal record. I feel so frustrated and my mind starts to race. Why is this still happening to me? Black men like David are six times more likely to be stopped than white men. Six times. The police are increasingly under pressure to explain why. A lot of the stop and search that is done is done really rudely and really horribly. It's almost humiliating young black kids. The facts are that young black men are disproportionately more likely to be victims of violent crimes. It's 40 years ago this week since the law underpinning stop and search was introduced. Police forces say it's a vital crime-fighting tool. But is it? Could it be doing more harm than good? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, our crime correspondent stopped and searched. I'm David Wood, and I'm the crime correspondent for The Times. How old were you when you were first stopped and searched? I was 16 years old. So what happened then? How did they stop you? So I was walking back from Sixth Form College. This was October 2003, walking Mm. through Basingstoke Town Centre. There's a group of us, so we'd always leave college together. And I felt somebody grab my right arm. Mm. And I remember recoiling... I tried to move my arm away and I looked and it was someone I didn't recognise. And then as I tried to walk away, his grip tightened on my arm and he showed me his warrant card. He said he was a police officer and he said I was being detained for a stop search. And I 
I, I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what was going on. And I remember, I remember him asking me lots of questions, like where I'd been. And I'd just come from my English literature and language AS level class. Because mm. I had my anthology. But it transpired that I matched a description of a man who was suspected of kidnapping a young woman who matched the description of the girl I was walking with. Mm. And I just remember thinking that I was being punked. You yeah. know, that, that show that was on MTV at the time, in the, which we're talking like the early 2000s, yeah. a practical joke show. And it transpired that it wasn't a wind-up. I, 16-year-old I, me, matched a description of someone who'd kidnapped someone. And I just remember thinking, like, I don't understand how this has happened. What did you say to him? I was searched and he was explaining um, that he would had reasonable grounds to stop and search me. They wrote me this slip, yellow slip, and was set on my way. I remember thinking, I, should I tell my dad? And my dad at the time worked night duty. And it was like an unspoken rule in our house that when you come home, don't wake your dad up because he's got to get up and go to work. Yeah. But I remember when I got home, I could hear him already kind of walking around upstairs and he asked me how my day was. And um, I just showed him the slip and, you know, very proud of kind of man said, what have I done? I was like, I haven't done anything, dad. <laughs> I haven't done anything. And um, he, I'm watching him reading it over and over again. And then he says, right, get my keys, wait downstairs. I'm going to get dressed. And we went to the police station we go in and I remember he spoke to the police officer on the front desk. I don't remember the conversation, but all I remember my dad saying is, he's just a child, he's just a child, he's just a child. And yeah, we never really spoke about it ever again. And then since then, from October 2003 up until December 2020, the stops continued. Continued to what degree? How many? At the last count at least 29. I'd be stopped on my way from the train station. I'd be stopped on my way to the train station. I'd be stopped when I was coming back from a night out with my flatmates. Going to the supermarket, yeah, could go yeah. on. What about your response to these? You said when it first happened to you, your overriding emotion was bewilderment yeah but how did that change i can be honest you know i became more frustrated became more angry as i got older where i was taking on more responsibility so i was going to work or i was doing my job and i had to be somewhere when you're stopped and you're going to be late for something that's where i would get used to get quite worked up very quickly and you know people say well if it was me i'd be just polite and I'll just answer the questions and go on my way and I don't doubt that. But if it happens to you 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 times, your patience does start to wear thin over time. But now I understand, as I've gotten older, that these police officers have got to do their job. Did you talk to your parents about it at that time when you were young? Not really, no. But did they, did they experience similar when they were growing up? No, so my parents, my dad came to Britain in 1969 from Ghana and my mum mm. followed in 1977. We didn't grow up in London and we didn't live in London when we were younger. We grew up in a town in Hampshire. We didn't really have any interactions with the police. You'd see police cards, you'd see occasional officers like in the town centre, but there was no reason why we would have any interaction with them. And so it just never really featured in our yeah. life. 
And we, my sister and I, we were just completely shut off from that. It was only when I got older. It's only when I had a growth spurt. You know, when I was 15, I was already like five foot ten and still growing. That even though you look like a child, people don't always perceive you as a child. And um, that's probably when I started to register. When did you become aware in terms of your own life about the, the racial disparity in it? Probably in my late teens, when, yeah. I, when I was in London, so like 18, 19. This was like 2005, 2006. Mm. Um, I would ask friends of all races, mm. tell me about how many you've been stopped by police, how many times you've been stopped by police. And it was really telling how, even up until now, friends, colleagues, some interviewees, those who were white have said almost always, never. Can you explain a bit of Stop and Search for us? And where does the power actually come from? So Stop and Search in England and Wales has its roots in the 1824 Vagrancy Act, which at the time gave officers the right to stop people who they deemed suspicious. And then throughout the 1970s, especially in inner London and inner city communities, there were accusations that the police were overusing this power and there was a lot of heavy-handed policing. In April 1981, there was a 10-day occupation in Brixton called Operation Swamp, where essentially the force took over the area and carried out hundreds of stop and searches, which led to 150 arrests, which led to a few days of rioting. After the riots, the government at the time commissioned a public inquiry, which was led by Lord Scarman. He went down to Brixton, spoke to a number of young people there. Good evening. Lord Scarman's report has been welcomed by the government, praised by the opposition, criticised by the local authority involved as a bitter disappointment, yet for better or worse... In his report at the end of the year, he said that the riots were an outburst of anger and resentment on behalf of the black community towards the police as a result of the antagonism. And he recommended that the police start recording all of their stops and he also suggested that the police complaints authority be formed. And so the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984, that formalised policing powers. It was just basically set up to establish safeguards for suspects. And with it came stop and search, as we know it today. And it's governed essentially under Section 1 of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. So that's what gives police officers reasonable grounds to mm. stop and search somebody if they believe they're carrying a weapon or drugs. Let's look at some of the stats then about what we know. We've obviously got lots of data on stop and search. Anecdotally, you've already said you've been stopped and searched way more than um, any white friends that you've got. Is that reflected in the, in the stats? So black people in England and Wales make up 4% of the population, yet black people, particularly men and boys, are about six times more likely to be stopped than white people. And it's this disproportionality that continues to fuel the debate around stop and search. And we've had police forces in the UK described as being institutionally racist, of course, most famously the, the Metropolitan Police after Baroness Casey's review. Do people directly make that link and say, police force racist, and that's why there's this disproportion in the stats? The Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, when Baroness Casey's review was published, he said he didn't 
accept the term institutional mm. because it means different things to different people. But yes. He accepts that there are issues that need to be dealt with. I think the thing that's really important to say is that policing has never really been able to explain the disproportionality. And that's something Andy Cook, uh, His Majesty's Chief Inspector of Constabulary, told me when I was reporting on this story. Is that disproportionality due to racism? Policing can't say yes or no because it's never done the research and, the, and had the, the proper academic input and in order to actually definitively say why that is the case. I mean, you can say a lot of it, and people will say a lot of it is due to inequality in economic terms. So a larger proportion of the black community, unfortunately, live within areas of, of higher deprivation. And that is why policing spends more time there. The HMIC, along with the College of Policing and the Independent Office for Police Conduct, have commissioned research to help understand this. There's got to be more empathy towards those who are being searched, but it's still a really vital power to use in preventing crime. And that balance is really important, which is why that makes such a big play of the fact that policing has got to be better about explaining itself in relation to doing it. You're in an interesting position because you're somebody who has both experienced a lot of stop and search, but also now you're a crime reporter. Mm. So you can also see what the police are trying to do through stop and search. Yeah, without doubt. You know, I remember seeing footage of police officers removing what was purportedly a very large zombie knife from a young male. And the kid looked distressed. And I remember the officers explaining why they were doing what they were doing. And that's a reality for many young people, that they are carrying knives. And when you speak to youth workers and you speak to young people and they'll tell you, look, I would rather be caught with a knife by the police than to be caught without one by a gang member. That's a reality for a lot of young people. A lot of young people say they don't feel safe on the street. Mm. We have to ask ourselves why that is. Coming up, what is going over all of this and publicly writing about it been like for David? We'll ask him that, and we'll ask whether there is any evidence that stop and search cuts knife crime. Stay with us. This weekend, if you're a Times subscriber, you can hear our latest episode of Inside the Newsroom. It's our new behind-the-scenes series on Apple Podcasts. Only subscribers can get it, so if that's not you, ask yourself seriously why. It's on the Stories of Our Times feed on Apple Podcasts. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcasts to find out how to get it. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. David, you've been taking us through, well, your experience of Stop and Search, but also the picture as as we know it is at the moment across the country and the racial disparities as well. You were talking about how it's being used quite a lot to try and tackle knife crime by police. Mm -hmm. How easy is it at the moment for kids to get their hands on quite dangerous knives? You say they often feel like they need to have one. Is it easy for them to get? I think it's become easier Mm. over time. You know, you sit through court cases and in um, prosecution statements when they're opening cases against defendants, you'll always hear, if it's in a stabbing case, that the murder weapon was from a kitchen drawer or it was obtained easily from a shop, something like that. Mm. But now the government are now seeking to close some of the loopholes in the law to make it harder to access them. So recently they moved to outlaw... Zombie knives. And when you say zombie knife, you mean? These very large blades, which typically have one smooth blade and one serrated edge. And some of them have got like multiple sharp points. And they may feature typically an image or a text that might say head splitter or predator, like basically designed to look like something out of a zombie film and um, make them look menacing. And they are enormous. Yeah, I've seen zombie knives 20, 25 inches long. And some of them are six or seven inches wide. Mm. These are knives that are designed to cause serious, sometimes fatal damage. And you don't see those in shops, obviously. So where do where are they bought? They can be bought online. There was a Times investigation last year where one of my colleagues found out that some of the weapons were being marketed towards teenagers on social media and QR codes were taking them to encrypted chat groups where they were able to buy them and rate and review them. Hmm. So if we've got this problem then where lots of kids are feeling like they need to have these knives and they have these particularly dangerous knives and the police are saying, well, we need stop and search because that's a way we can try and police this. Do we actually have any understanding about how successful they are on that front? So out of the 540,000 or so Section 1 stop and searches that were carried out in England and Wales up until March 2023, around 14% of those led to arrest. Having spoken to the Metropolitan Police, they're removing hundreds of weapons from the streets a month. Still, it's a notable figure, but it's still too easy for young people to get hold of knives. What level of support is there, can we tell, amongst communities particularly affected by knife crime for stop and search? Like, do they think it's needed and is successful enough? 
No parent who I've ever interviewed who's lost a child to knife crime or has had their child seriously injured in a knife attack is ever going to say they don't agree with stop and search. But what they have said is, if you're going to stop and search, it has to act as a deterrent. You can't stop and search a child, take a knife off them, and they'd be able to go and just rearm themselves. That's the issue. So there's young black kids we know are more likely to be stopped and searched by the police. Is that because they're most at risk of, of knife crime, either being the victim of it or perpetrating it? Andy Cook has also mentioned that to me. Young black people are more likely to be subject of knife crime and subject of homicide. I think the homicide rate is four times more for a, uh, a young male from an, an ethnic minority than it is for a white male. And I think the sad thing is if stop search is undertaken in the right way, I think the vast majority of all our communities would agree it was a good thing to do to stop criminality and to keep people safe. There was a report at the end of 2022 carried out by Crest Advisory. That's a criminal justice consultancy. And they surveyed communities nationally on their thoughts about stop and search. Results showed that 86% of people support the use of stop and search if an individual is suspected of being in possession of a weapon. And 77% of black adults supported this too. However, less than a third of people that's about 32% of adults who'd been stopped and searched felt the police did not explain their rights to them. And this kind of poor communication went up to 39% when asked of black adults. So overall, when you look at the findings, it indicates that there could be some room for improvement. And on the room for improvement, yes. what are some forces actually trying to do, if anything? So last summer, the Metropolitan Police had a pilot in two boroughs in London where essentially they took this practice called precision stop and search. It was something that was pioneered by the New York Police Department about a decade ago, using data, intelligence and science to better target violent hotspots and prevent weapons from being carried in that area. Mm. And one other thing they've also looked at is procedural justice. And so that's essentially training officers to have better interactions with those people who they're stopping and searching, making sure they're explaining explaining the reasons why they're stopping and searching someone. And do we know if that all went well, the pilots? So we haven't had the data on its efficacy yet. Is communication a, a broader issue, not just in the instance of a stop and search, but between the police force and the community? Do each side understand enough about what the other is trying to do and what their issues are? So in September last year, I attended a meeting at Lambeth Town Hall in Brixton and the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Mark Rowley, was there and he was just talking to people from that area about his plan to raise standards, restore trust and fight crime. And I bumped into a young man who I'd met at a previous event. His name was Davarel. At the time he was 19 and he is a member of Lambeth Young Advisors, a group of 16 to 24 year olds who essentially work with young people in the area to educate them and help them understand issues of policing. Mm. And one of the things that he told me that struck me was how he's been stopped by police at least 100 times. And, you know, he talked to me about how the anger and frustration he felt, but he recognised that that wasn't healthy and he wanted to actually do something. He said, you know, I'm not known to the police. 
I don't have a criminal record. But I got to the point where I just didn't want to leave my house. And imagine being 14, 15, 16, and you, you feel like you can't leave your house. That's not right. I don't think that's right. And so, you know, joins Lambeth Young Advisors. And one of the things they do is they, at these public meetings, they have hundreds of these stop and search cards printed out. They're the size of a debit card and they fit in the back of your wallet or in your back of your phone case. And they set out the law, what police officers must do, Mm. the script that they must follow in order to carry out those searches. And you now got these young people who are empowered to challenge officers if they don't follow the rules that are set. And I think that's brilliant because we all know stop and search is not going anywhere. You know, the previous Home Secretary, sort of Braverman, had said in a letter to police chiefs last summer that they have her blessing to essentially carry out stop and searches to ramp it up in order to protect the public and take weapons off the streets. Mm. But what, what has to happen is that it's got to be properly targeted. It's got to be done with respect I think people will meet the police halfway if those actions are followed through. Obviously, this is something that you've been thinking about since, I guess, 16, when you were first stopped and searched. But what was it that made you want to actually really dive into this now? At the start of last year, I moved house and I pulled all my stuff out of storage And um, I just kept finding these slips. I found Hampshire Constabulary, the Metropolitan Police, Essex Police, Hertfordshire Constabulary. And I just remember one afternoon, while surrounded by boxes, I just sat on the floor, I picked them off my kitchen side, and I went through them, I put them in date order. Mm. And then I remembered other interactions with police where I've been stopped, driving my car, doing my job, walking home from the train station, having finished work, working a Christmas shift in central London. And I just started writing them down. And then that's how I arrived at 29. What was it like for you to actually, I guess, properly piece them all together for the first time and see the scale and the breadth of it? Do you know, I think uh, it was a real... It, it, did, it played on my mind, actually. And um, that's sometimes, uh, in a way, it's good because it forced me to think about it. But it got me thinking, when I looked from 2003 up until 2020, when I had my last stop and search, mm. that's almost half my life. Mm. When you're 16, you think you know everything. You think that you're, you know, you're a big man and that you're ready for the world. And um, I remembered thinking how that was when something changed in me around that time. Mm. I remember thinking that's when I became a bit more hyper-aware of how I move, how I'm dressed, who I'm with, how I'm travelling. How you're dressed? Yeah, because if you're always being told you match a description of someone in a hoodie who's committed a crime, it makes you question whether you want to be wearing a hoodie because you don't want to keep being accused of committing a crime. Mm. I don't particularly drive a lot at night unless I'm working. I'm always kind of aware of my surroundings. There are certain places that you won't catch me in. There are certain places in London you just won't catch me in because I know that if I go there, I just feel, I'll feel uncomfortable. And actually, that's not normal, Hmm. is it? 
I don't want my day ruined. I don't want to have to then keep going back over something that I, that I will then think, I wish I could have not gone there. Mm. Or I wish I could have prevented it, you know? Yeah. I know that sounds quite, sounds quite silly, but um, it was something that when I sat down, I realised that it's probably had, a, had more of an effect than I'd realised. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Luke Jones, and my guest, crime correspondent for The Times, David Wood. You can read all of David's work, including his full magazine piece on Stop and Search at thetimes.co.uk, with a subscription, of course. We'll put a link to it in the description. The producer was Sam Chantarasak. The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield. And sound design was by Hannah Varrell. If you enjoyed this podcast and think others should listen as well, a solid five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to us on would help no end. Thank you in advance. Goodbye.